morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to Ink and Ash. I'm Sean Ennis, and today I've got two stories from you from two authors that have not yet been featured on the show, so let's get right to it. There's no new reviews today, so you know what to do. Hit up your Apple Podcasts or your Podchaser.com or wherever you can leave a review and leave that review. Once I see it, I'll read it right here on the show. This week, I'm bringing you two new stories, as I just said. So both of these have authors that have not yet been featured, so the intro is going to be a bit longer than usual. As a reminder, if you're not interested in the intros, you can always use the timestamps to navigate the podcast, or you can head over to YouTube to just hear the story itself with no intro or outro. But let's get right into it. First up is the story called Just Lather, That's All, and it was written by Hernando Tellez. This one was actually a request from a patron of the show, Noel. So thanks to Noel for this suggestion. Let's talk about the author for a minute here. Hernando Tellez was a Colombian writer and journalist born in March of 1908 in Bogota, Colombia. He was the son of Rafael Tellez and Soledad Castellanos uh, and had one brother, Alberto Tellez. Tellez attended school in Bogota and later studied philosophy and literature at the National University of Colombia. In his early 20s, he began working as a journalist for various newspapers and magazines, including El Tiempo, which was one of Colombia's largest newspapers. Tellez's first published work was a collection of short stories titled, and pardon my pronunciation here, I don't speak Spanish, Ceniza para el Viento, which means Ashes for the Wind, which was published in 1944. This collection included today's story, which has also been called Just Lather and Nothing Else. This is considered one of his most famous works. Uh, Tellez made his living as a writer and a journalist and was considered one of Colombia's most important writers of the 20th century. His works have been widely translated into other languages. Tellez is best known for his short stories, which often deal with social and political themes. In addition to Just Lather, That's All, one of his other well-known stories includes El Carbunclo Azul, or The Blue Carbuncle. In addition to his fiction, Tellez was also an accomplished journalist and essayist, and he wrote extensively on social and political issues in Colombia and beyond. He was a vocal advocate for social justice and human rights, and his writing often reflected his political and social concerns. Tellez left Colombia in the late 1940s, and from then on he lived in various cities in Europe, including Paris, Rome, and Madrid. One possible reason for Tellez's move to Europe was his interest in European culture and literature. He was known to be an avid reader of European literature and influenced by writers such as Franz Kafka, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and William Faulkner. He also wrote extensively on European culture, including his essays on art, music, and history. Of course, another reason for Tellez's move to Europe may have been political. He was a vocal critic of the Colombian government and its policies, and was frequently persecuted for his political views. Before his departure from Colombia, he was imprisoned by the government for his political activities, and it is possible that he felt he would be safer living abroad. Tellez died on March 15, 1966, in Madrid, Spain, where he had been living for several years. Our second story today is entitled The Notary of Perigro, and it comes to us from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Now, Longfellow is also making his Ink and Ash debut, so here's a bit more about him. Longfellow was born in Portland, Maine in 1807 and was the second of eight children. His father, Stephen Longfellow, was a lawyer and member of Congress, and his mother, Zilpa Wadsworth Longfellow, 
was a descendant of John Alden and Priscilla Mullins, who came to the New World on the Mayflower. Longfellow attended Portland Academy and then went on to study at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. That may be pronounced wrong, I'm not sure. He graduated from Bowdoin in 1825 and then traveled to Europe to continue his studies. While in Europe, he studied languages and literature and became fluent in French, Spanish, Italian, and German. After returning to the States in 1829, Longfellow began his career as a professor. He taught at Bowdoin College from 1829 to 1835, where he was appointed the college's first professor of modern languages. In 1835, he accepted a position at Harvard University, where he taught modern languages and literature for the rest of his career. Longfellow's teaching career was important to him, and he took it very seriously. He was known for his engaging lectures and his dedication to his students, and he believed that literature had the power to transform people's lives. Of course, he also continued to write during his years as a professor, publishing several books of poetry and translations of works by European poets. Longfellow's first published work was a poem called The Battle of Lovell's Pond, which he published anonymously in the Portland Advertiser on November 17, 1820. He was 13 years old at the time, and the poem was written about a battle that took place in his home state of Maine during the American Revolution. His first major publication was a collection of poems entitled Voices of the Night, which was published in 1839. The collection included some of his most famous works, including The Psalm of Life and The Light of the Stars. Longfellow was already well regarded before this work was released, but this collection vaulted him into instant fame. He went on to publish many more books of poetry over the course of his career, including Ballads and Other Poems in 1841, Poems on Slavery in 1842, The Belfry of Bruges and Other Poems in 1846, and The Courtship of Miles Standish and Other Poems in 1858. He was known for his narrative style of poetry, which often told stories or described scenes from history or mythology. In addition to his poetry, Longfellow was also a prolific translator, and he translated numerous works from European languages into English. His translations include Dante's The Divine Comedy, Goethe's Faust, and numerous works by French, Spanish, and Italian poets. Now, some writers are more well-known after they've passed on than they are during their lives. This was not the case, as discussed earlier, with Longfellow. His writing was extremely popular in his own time, both in the United States and abroad. His poems were widely read and lauded for their lyrical beauty and romantic sentimentality. He was also well-respected as a scholar of languages and literature, and his translations were also highly regarded. To go through a list of his awards and recognitions would just be too much for this space. So today, Longfellow is best remembered for poems such as Paul Revere's Ride, The Song of Hiawatha, and Evangeline, which continue to be popular and widely read. His works are celebrated for their accessible language, emotional depth, and timeless themes of love, loss, and the human experience. Unfortunately for Longfellow himself, he knew the themes of love and loss quite well. He was married twice, and both marriages ended in the deaths of his wife. His first wife, Mary, died at the age of 22 due to complications from a miscarriage, and his second wife, Fanny, died when her dress caught fire from a candle. Longfellow himself attempted to smother the fire with his body, but it was too late. If that wasn't enough, his son was also paralyzed fighting in the American Civil War. 
These last two events in particular led to Longfellow's mindset when he wrote the poem I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, which has of course become a well-known Christmas song since then. Now usually I try to give a number of works that an author published during his or her time, but with Longfellow that number becomes a bit daunting. He wrote a lot, I'll say that. Now this has been a bit longer than I typically go with introductions, and that's just kind of how it works sometimes when you come across a writer as celebrated as Longfellow is. And even with that, there's a bunch more that could be said about him, but this is, after all, a storytelling podcast. So let's talk about the story before we get into this week's work. The Notary of Perigo is a rare short story from the noted poet. It was published in 1831 in the Token and Atlantic Souvenir. There's not a lot of story behind that, really. It's just not very well known, as Longfellow is more known as a poet. The Token and Atlantic Souvenir was a literary gift book that was published annually in the United States from 1828 to 1851. It was founded by Samuel Griswold Goodrich, who was a prominent American author and publisher. The Token and Atlantic Souvenir was known for its high-quality writing, illustrations, and engravings. It featured contributions from some of the most prominent American writers of the time, including Nathaniel Hawthorne, Edgar Allan Poe, of course Longfellow, Harry Beecher Stowe, uh, and several others. The magazine was published under the name The Token for its first two years, before being renamed The Token and Atlantic Souvenir in 1830. It was published annually, typically in the fall, and was sold as a gift book for the holiday season. It ceased publication in 1851, after 24 years of publication. So, I hope you enjoyed that introduction to this week's show, and now that you know a little bit more about the stories... Let's get right into today's feature presentation, right after this. Ink and Ash is brought to you by my wonderful, generous patrons, Dan, Alan, Nate, Julio, Vanessa, Robert, Noel, Nicole, Matthew, Nick, Jay, and Emma. If you want to join the party and get your hands on exclusive merchandise and hours of exclusive bonus content, head over to patreon.com slash inkandashpod. If you want to help out the show but Patreon isn't for you, you can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, podchaser.com, or wherever you're listening, and you can subscribe to the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at inkandashpod. Giving the videos a like helps out as well. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's story. Just lather, that's all, by Hernando Tellez. He said nothing when he entered. I was passing the best of my razors back and forth on a strop. When I recognized him, I started to tremble, but he didn't notice. Hoping to conceal my emotion, I continued sharpening the razor. I tested it on the meat of my thumb and then held it up to the light. At that moment, he took off the bullet-studded belt that his gun holster dangled from. He hung it up on a wall hook and placed his military cap over it. Then he turned to me, loosening the knot of his tie, and he said, It's hot as hell. Give me a shave. He sat in the chair. I estimated he had a four-day beard, the four days taken up by the latest expedition in search of our troops. His face seemed reddened, burned by the sun. Carefully, I began to prepare the soap. I cut off a few slices, dropped them into the cup, mixed in a bit of warm water, and began to stir with the brush. Immediately, the foam began to rise. The other boys in the group should have this much beer, too. I continued, stirring the lather. But we did all right, you know. We got the main ones. We brought back some dead. We got some others still alive. 
but pretty soon they'll all be dead. How many did you catch? I asked. Fourteen. We had to go pretty deep into the woods to find them. But we'll get even. Not one of them comes out of this alive. Not one. He leaned back on the chair when he saw me with a lather-covered brush in my hand. I still had to put the sheet on him. No doubt about it, I was upset. I took a sheet out of the drawer and knotted it around my customer's neck. He wouldn't stop talking. He probably thought I was in sympathy with his party. The town must have learned a lesson from what we did the other day, he said. Uh, yes, I replied, securing the knot at the base of his dark, sweaty neck. There was a fine show, eh? Very good, I answered, turning back for the brush. The man closed his eyes with a gesture of fatigue and sat waiting for the cool caress of the soap. I had never had him this close to me. The day he ordered the whole town to file into the patio of the school to see the four rebels hanging there, I came face to face with him for an instant. But the sight of the mutilated bodies kept me from noticing the face of the man who had directed it all, the face I was now about to take into my hands. It was not an unpleasant face, certainly, and the beard, which made him seem a bit older than he was, didn't suit him badly at all. His name was Torres, Captain Torres, a man of imagination, because who else would have thought of hanging naked rebels and then holding target practice on certain parts of their bodies? I began to apply the first layer of soap. With his eyes closed, he continued, "'Without any effort, I could go straight to sleep,' he said. "'But there is plenty to do this afternoon.' I stopped the lathering and asked with a feigned lack of interest. Firing squad? Uh, something like that, but a bit slower. I got on with the job of lathering his beard. My hands started trembling again. The man could not possibly realize it, and this was in my favor. But I would have preferred that he hadn't come. It was likely that many of our faction had seen him enter, and an enemy under one's roof imposes certain conditions. I would be obliged to shave that beard like any other one carefully, gently, like that of any customer, taking pains to see that no single pore emitted a drop of blood, being careful to see that the little tufts of hair did not lead the blade astray, seeing that his skin ended up clean, soft, and healthy, so that passing the back of my hand over it I couldn't feel a hair. Yes, I was secretly a rebel, but I was also a conscientious barber, and proud of the preciseness of my profession and this four days' growth of beard was a fitting challenge. I took the razor, opened up the two protective arms, exposed the blade, and began the job, from one of the signbirds downward. The razor responded beautifully. His beard was inflexible and hard, not too long, but thick. Bit by bit, the skin emerged. The razor rasped along, making its customary sound as fluffs of lather mixed with bits of hair gathered along the blade. I paused a moment to clean it, then took up the strop again to sharpen the razor because I'm a barber who does things properly. The man, who had kept his eyes closed, opened them now, removed one of his hands from under the sheet, felt the spot on his face where the soap had been cleared off, and said, Come to the school today at six o'clock. The same thing as the other day? I asked, horrified. It could be better, he replied. What do you plan to do? I don't know yet but we'll amuse ourselves. Once more he leaned back and closed his eyes. I approached him with a razor poised. Do you plan to punish them all? I ventured timidly. All. The soap was drying on his face. I had to hurry. In the mirror I looked toward the street. It was the same as ever, the grocery store with two or three customers in it. 
Then I glanced at the clock, two-twenty in the afternoon. The razor continued on its downward stroke, now from the other sideburn down, a thick blue beard. He should have let it grow like some poets or priests do. It would suit him well. A lot of people wouldn't recognize him, much to his benefit, I thought, as I attempted to cover the neck area smoothly. There, for sure, the razor had to be handled masterfully, since the hair, although softer, grew into little swirls, a very curly beard. One of the tiny pores could be opened up and issue forth its pearl of blood. A good barber such as I prides himself on never allowing this to happen to a client, and this was a first-class client. How many of us had he ordered shot? How many of us had he ordered mutilated? It was better not to think about it. Torres did not know that I was his enemy. He did not know it, nor did the rest. It was a secret shared by very few, precisely so that I could inform the revolutionaries of what Torres was doing in the town, and of what he was planning each time he undertook a rebel-hunting excursion. So it was going to be very difficult to explain that I had him right in my hands and let him go peacefully, alive and shaved. The beard was now almost completely gone. He seemed younger, less burned by years than when he had arrived. I supposed this always happens with men who visit barber shops. Under the stroke of my razor, Torres was being rejuvenated. Rejuvenated because I am a good barber, the best in the town, if I may say so. A little more lather here, under his chin, on his Adam's apple, on this big vein. How hot it is getting. Torres must be sweating as much as I am. But he is not afraid. He is a calm man, who is not even thinking about what he is going to do with the prisoners this afternoon. On the other hand, I, with this razor in my hands, stroking and restroking this skin, trying to keep blood from oozing from these pores, can't even think clearly. Damn him for coming, because I'm a revolutionary and not a murderer. How easy it would be to kill him, and he deserves it, does he? No, what the devil. No one deserves to have someone else make the sacrifice of becoming a murderer. What do you gain by it? Nothing. Others come along, and still others, and the first ones kill the second ones, and then they the next ones, and it goes on like this until everything is a sea of blood. I could cut his throat just so. Zip, zip. I wouldn't give him time to complain, and since he has his eyes closed, he wouldn't see the glistening knife blade or my glistening eyes. But I'm trembling like a real murderer. Out of his neck a gush of blood would spout onto the sheet, on the chair, on my hands, on the floor. I would have to close the door, and the blood would keep inching along the floor, warm, ineradicable, uncontainable, till it reached the street like a little scarlet stream. I'm sure that one solid stroke, one deep incision, would prevent any pain. He wouldn't suffer. But what would I do with the body? Where would I hide it? I would have to flee, leaving all I have behind, and take refuge far away, far, far away. But they would follow until they found me. Captain Torres's murderer, he slit his throat while he was shaving him, a coward. And then on the other side, the avenger of us all, the name to remember, and here they would mention my name. He was the town barber. No one knew he was defending our cause. And what of all this? Murderer or hero? My destiny depends on the edge of this blade. I can turn my hand a bit more, press a little harder on the razor, and sink it in. The skin would give way like silk, like rubber, like the strop. There is nothing more tender than human skin, and the blood is always there, ready to pour forth. A blade like this doesn't fail. It is my best. But I don't want to be a murderer. No, sir. You come to me for a shave, and I perform my work honorably. I don't want blood on my hands. Just lather. That's all. 
You are an executioner, and I am only a barber. Each person has his own place in the scheme of things. That's right, his own place. Now his chin had been stroked clean and smooth. The man sat up and looked into the mirror. He rubbed his hands over his skin and felt it fresh like new. Thanks, he said. He went to the hangar for his belt, pistol, and cap. I must have been very pale. My shirt felt soaked. Torres finished adjusting the buckle, straightened his pistol in the holster, and after automatically smoothing down his hair, he put on the cap. From his pants pocket, he took out several coins to pay me for my services, and he began to head toward the door. In the doorway, he paused for a moment, and turning to me, he said, They told me that you'd kill me. I came to find out that killing isn't easy. You can take my word for it. And he turned and walked away. The Notary of Perigo by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow Do not trust thy body with a physician. He'll make thy foolish bones go without flesh in a fortnight, and thy soul walk without a body in a sen-night after. Surely. You must know, gentlemen, that there lived some years ago in the city of Perigo an honest notary public, the descendant of a very ancient and broken-down family, and the occupant of one of those old weather-beaten tenements which remind you of the times of your great-grandfather. He was a man of an unoffending, quiet disposition, the father of a family, though not the head of it, for in that family the hen overcrowed the cock, and the neighbors, when they spake of that notary, shrugged their shoulders and exclaimed, Poor fellow, his spurs want sharpening. In fine, you understand me, gentlemen, he was henpecked. Well, Finding no peace at home, he sought it elsewhere, as was very natural for him to do, and at length discovered a place of rest far beyond the cares and clamors of domestic life. There was a little café estaminet a short way out of the city, whither he repaired every evening to smoke his pipe, drink sugar water, and play his favorite game of domino. There he met the boon companions he most loved, heard all the floating chit-chat of the day, laughed when he was in a merry mood, found consolation when he was sad, and at all times gave vent to his opinions without fear of being snubbed short by a flat contradiction. Now the notary's bosom friend was a dealer in claret and cognac, who lived about a league from the city and always passed his evenings at the estaminet. He was a gross, corpulent fellow, raised from a full-blooded Gascon breed, and sired by a comic actor of some reputation in his way. He was remarkable for nothing but his good humor, his love of cards, and a strong propensity to test the quality of his own liquors by comparing them with those sold at other places. As evil communications corrupt good manners, the bad practices of the wine dealer won insensibly upon the worthy notary, and before he was aware of it he found himself weaned from domino and sugar water and addicted to piquet and spiced wine. Indeed, it not infrequently happened that, after a long session at the estaminet, the two friends grew so urbane that they would waste a full half-hour at the door in friendly dispute which should conduct the other home. Though this course of life agreed well enough with the sluggish, phlegmatic temperament of the wine-dealer, it soon began to play the very deuce with a more sensitive organization of the notary, and finally put his nervous system completely out of tune. He lost his appetite, became gaunt and haggard, and could get no sleep. Legions of blue devils haunted him by day, and by night strange faces peeped through his bed curtains, and the nightmare snorted in his ear. The worse he grew, the more he smoked and tippled. 
and the more he smoked and tippled, why, as a matter of course, the worse he grew. His wife alternately stormed, remonstrated, entreated, but all in vain. She made the house too hot for him. He retreated to the tavern. She broke his long-stemmed pipes upon the andirons, and he substituted a short-stemmed one, which, for safekeeping, he carried in his waistcoat pocket. Thus the unhappy notary ran gradually down at the heel. What with his bad habits and domestic grievances, he became completely hipped. He imagined that he was going to die, and suffered in quick succession all the diseases that ever beset mortal man. Every shooting pain was an alarming symptom, every uneasy feeling after dinner a sure prognostic of some mortal disease. In vain did his friends endeavor to reason, and then to laugh him out of his strange whims. For when did ever jest or reason cure a sick imagination? His only answer was, Do let me alone, I know better than you what ails me. Well, gentlemen, things were in this state when, one afternoon in December, he sat moping in his office, wrapped in an overcoat, with a cap on his head and his feet thrust into a pair of furred slippers. A cabriolet stopped at the door, and a loud knocking without aroused him from his gloomy reverie. It was a message from his friend the wine-dealer, who had suddenly been attacked with a violent fever, and, growing worse and worse, now sent in the greatest haste for the notary to draw up his last will and testament. The case was urgent, and admitted neither excuse nor delay, and the notary, tying a handkerchief round his face and buttoning up to the chin, jumped into the cabriolet and suffered himself, though not without some dismal presentiments and misgivings of heart, to be driven to the wine-dealer's house. When he arrived, he found everything in the greatest confusion. On entering the house, he ran against the apothecary, who was coming downstairs with a face as long as your arm, and a few steps farther he met the housekeeper, for the wine-dealer was an old bachelor, running up and down and wringing her hands, for fear that the good man should die without making his will. He soon reached the chamber of his sick friend and found him tossing about in a paroxysm of fever and calling aloud for a draught of cold water. The notary shook his head. He thought this a fatal symptom, for ten years back the wine-dealer had been suffering under a species of hydrophobia, which seemed suddenly to have left him. "'Ah, uh, my dear friend, have you come at last? Uh, you see, it is all over with me. You have arrived just in time to draw up that... Passport of mine. Oh, Grand Diable, how hot it is in here. Water, water, water. Will nobody give me a drop of cold water? As the case was an urgent one, the notary made no delay in getting his papers in readiness, and in a short time the last will and testament of the wine dealer was drawn up in due form, the notary guiding the sick man's hand as he scrawled his signature at the bottom. As the evening wore away, the wine-dealer grew worse and worse, and at length became delirious, mingling in his incoherent ravings the phrases of the credo and paternoster with the shibboleth of the dram-shop and the card-table. Take care, take care, there now, credo in, pop ting a ling a ling give me some of that, centies, oh, why you publican, this wine is poisoned, I know your tricks, sanctum ecclesium catholicum, well, well, we shall see, imbecile, to have a tierce major and a seven of hearts and discard the seven. By St. Anthony, you capo, you are lurched. <laughs> I told you so. I knew very well. There, there, don't interrupt me. Carnes resurrectionum et vitam eternum. With these words upon his lips, the poor wine-dealer expired. Meanwhile, the notary sat cowering over the fire, aghast at the fearful scene that was passing before him, and now and then striving to keep up his courage by a glass of cognac. Already his fears were on the alert, and the idea of contagion flitted to and fro through his mind. 
In order to quiet these thoughts of evil import, he lighted his pipe and began to prepare for returning home. At that moment the apothecary turned round to him and said, "'Dreadful sickly time, this. The disorder seems to be spreading.' "'What disorder?' exclaimed the notary, with a movement of surprise. Two died yesterday and three today,' continued the apothecary, without answering the question. "'Very sickly time, sir, very.' "'But what disorder is it? What disease has carried off my friend here so suddenly?' "'What disease? Why, scarlet fever, to be sure. "'And is it contagious?' "'Certainly.' "'Oh, then I am a dead man!' exclaimed the notary, putting his pipe into his waistcoat pocket and beginning to walk up and down the room in despair. "'I am a dead man! Oh, now don't deceive me, don't, will you? What, what are the symptoms?' "'A sharp burning pain in the right side,' said the apothecary. "'Ah, what a fool I was to come here!' In vain did the housekeeper and the apothecary strive to pacify him. He was not a man to be reasoned with. He answered that he knew his own constitution better than they did, and insisted upon going home without delay. Unfortunately, the vehicle he came in had returned to the city, and the whole neighborhood was abed and asleep. What was to be done? Nothing in the world but to take the apothecary's horse, which stood hitched at the door, patiently waiting his master's will. Well, gentlemen, there was no remedy. Our notary mounted his raw-boned steed and set forth upon his homeward journey. The night was cold and gusty, and the wind right in his teeth. Overhead the leaden clouds were beating to and fro, and through them the newly risen moon seemed to be tossing and drifting along like a cockboat in the surf, now swallowed up in a huge billow of cloud, and now lifted upon its bosom and dashed with silvery spray. The trees by the roadside groaned with a sound of evil omen, and before him lay three mortal miles beset with a thousand imaginary perils. Obedient to the whip and the spur, the steed leaped forward by fits and starts, now dashing away in a tremendous gallop, and now relaxing into a long, hard trot, while the rider, filled with symptoms of disease and dire presentiments of death, urged him on, as if he were fleeing before the pestilence. In his way, by dint of whistling and shouting and beating right and left, one mile of the fatal three was safely passed. The apprehensions of the notary had so far subsided that he even suffered the poor horse to walk uphill but these apprehensions were suddenly revived again with tenfold violence by a sharp pain in his right side, which seemed to pierce him like a needle. "'Oh, is it upon me at last?' groaned the fear-stricken man. "'Heaven, be merciful to me, the greatest of sinners! And must I die in a ditch after all? Hey, up! Get up! Up!' And away went horse and rider at full speed, hurry-scurry, uphill and down, panting and blowing like a whirlwind. At every leap the pain in the rider's side seemed to increase. At first it was a little point like the prick of a needle, and then it spread to the size of a half-franc piece, then covered a place as large as the palm of your hand. It gained upon him fast. The poor man groaned aloud in agony. Faster and faster sped the horse over the frozen ground. Farther and farther spread the pain over his side. To complete the dismal picture, the storm commenced, snow mingled with rain, but snow and rain and cold were naught to him, for though his arms and legs were frozen to icicles, he felt it not. The fatal symptom was upon him. He was doomed to die, not of cold, but of scarlet fever. At length, he knew not how, more dead than alive, he reached the gate of the city. A band of ill-bred dogs that were serenading in a corner of the street, seeing the notary dash by, joined in the hue and cry, and ran barking and yelping at his heels. It was now late at night, and only here and there a solitary lamp twinkled from an upper story. But on went the notary, down his street and up that, till at last he reached his own door. 
There was a light in his wife's bedchamber. The good woman came to the window, alarmed at such a knocking and howling and clattering at her door at so late at night, and the notary was too deeply absorbed in his own sorrows to observe that the lamp cast the shadow of two heads on the window curtain. "'Let me in! Let me in! Quick! Quick!' he exclaimed, almost breathless from terror and fatigue. "'Who are you that come to disturb a lone woman at this hour of night?' cried a sharp voice from above. "'Be gone about your business and let the quiet people sleep!' "'Oh, Diable, Diable, come down and let me in! I am your husband! Don't you know my voice? Quick, I beseech you, for I am dying here in the street!' After a few moments of delay and a few more words of parley, the door was opened, and the notary stalked into his domicile, pale and haggard in aspect, and as stiff and straight as a ghost. Cased from head to heel in an armor of ice, as the glare of lamp fell upon him, he looked like a knight-errant mailed in steel. But in one place his armor was broken. On his right side there was a circular spot as large as the crown of your hat, and about as black. "'My dear wife,' he exclaimed, with more tenderness than he had exhibited for many years, "'reach me a chair. My hours are numbered. I am a dead man.' Alarmed at these exclamations, his wife stripped off his overcoat. Something fell from beneath it and was dashed to pieces on the hearth. It was the notary's pipe. He placed his hand upon his side, and lo, it was bare to the skin. Coat, waistcoat, and linen were burnt through and through, and there was a blister on his side as large over as your head. The mystery was soon explained, symptom and all. The notary had put his pipe into his pocket without knocking out the ashes. And so my story ends. Is that all? asked the radical, when the storyteller had finished. That is all. Well, what does your story prove? That is more than I can tell. All I know is that the story is true. And did he die? said the nice little man in gosling green. Uh, yes, he died afterwards, replied the storyteller, rather annoyed at the question. And what did he die of? continued the gosling green, following him up. Uh, what did he die of? Why, he died of a sudden. You know, everybody loves a story with a meaning or a moral, and we certainly got that with today's first tale. But the second one shows that sometimes a story is just a story, and that's okay too. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Ink and Dash. For all things Ink and Ash, visit inkanddashpod.com. And next time, I've got another creepy tale for you that I think you're going to enjoy. Do tune in for that, won't you? Until then, this has been Ink and Ash. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.